Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. For this very special Friday bonus episode, I welcome back Corey Mintz, an author, journalist, and podcaster. Corey's the host of the new Canada Land podcast, Taste Buds, which brings cooks, chefs, restaurateurs, and the occasional journalist together for a conversation about the business of food. It's a great idea for a show, and I've been enjoying the episodes as they've dropped over these last few weeks. Corey picked Big Night, Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott's wonderful, wonderful 1996 comedy drama starring Tucci and Tony Shalhoub as Italian brothers in 1950s New Jersey who jump at the chance to cook a celebratory feast for visiting celebrity Louis Prima and, you know, maybe boost the popularity of their struggling restaurant by doing so. Featuring a magnificent cast of character actors including Ian Holm, Minnie Driver, Isabella Rossellini, Liev Schreiber, Liev Schreiber, and future Oscar winner Allison Janney, it's a character study, it's a period comedy, it's food porn, it's a perfectly calibrated drama, and it's kind of a tragedy that it's receded from the larger conversation. But if you know it, you love it. And your mouth is probably watering right now at the thought of that timpano. This is someone else's movie. You suggested Mission Impossible. I said, is there maybe a movie with food in it? I didn't just suggest Mission Impossible. I pleaded with you. <laughs> yeah, but then you saw the last one. To talk about... Yes, and that had nothing to do with a Mission Impossible 6 coming out. I really just like that childhood obsession with the TV show and the difference in the movies, yada, yada. I was just so... I was like, I want to talk to somebody about this. But you <laughs> rightly suggested, hey, maybe... You're pitching a food podcast. Yeah, I've got a show that's about food. Maybe you want to be talking about food. I try not to steer, and, but it just um, logical. And there's really only one food movie that I like. And and you mentioned earlier, like, you know, you would about walking out of a movie and that has have you ever have you ever like sat through, you know, two thirds of a tedious movie that suddenly got better? And my one example is a movie that I thought was good, but I did have that feeling, which was Babette's Feast. Oh, yeah. Which I was sitting there going, why, after like 20 years of people trying to get me to watch this, am I sitting through this? It's incredibly dull. And it just gradually gets really interesting towards the end. It kind of justifies the whole, I mean, because it's about people denying themselves pleasure and then yeah. they experience it. And uh, I guess, okay, I felt that. You certainly denied me pleasure for the first two thirds of this movie, but not in a way that I would ever watch again, as opposed to Big Night, which um, I love. Yeah, I, it's I, pleasurable from beginning to end. It's just, it's a delight. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, um, and, and, and I have to say this, and I, like the, I, I love the movie. It, 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 it is inspiring. There's a lot to love about it. The one thing that annoys me because, um, like, as a food writer, occasionally I get these pitches that, like, some restaurant is, at, they're going to do, like, a screening of the movie and then they're going to make the timpano dish right. from the movie. And people people will ask me when it, that movie comes up, have you ever had timpano? Have you ever made timpano? It's not good. It's not a good dish. <laughs> and, like, it's, we, we can get this later as we as we go oh, through, like, what's yeah, this yeah. movie about? I don't want to rush into it, but, like, that's my major problem with this movie is just created this idea that this unbelievably di good dish because of the way it's fetishized and presented so lovingly in the movie, but, like, it's not good. I wonder if, like, I kind of want to know if maybe there's one exceptional timpano that, that Tucci and Scott had years and years and years ago 
that haunted them that made them make the movie about it. Or if they're setting us up to understand, like anybody who knows what Timpano is is going to be like, oh, that's not the best idea, and set us up for the defeat at the end. Possibly. I mean, that's a good explanation for why they chose that dish. We should put some... Con- Sorry. I'm, I'm always I'm, looking for the metaphor. I'm, I'm, And I'm... So the thing that I'm learning in, in, in working on the Taste Bud show is the like... And, and I know you don't... So you're very good at doing this, is pausing and saying, now a lot of people don't know this, right. you know, in yours, it's movies, like this came out in 1934, and it was, you know, it was a precursor to film noir, and for me it's like, we, we did the first episode, and it's just like us talking in a restaurant, it's four people talking over each other, and I've learned to like, interrupt people, pause, give the le- reader information right. that they probably need to know, particularly when we're talking about this sort of like, gossipy restaurant world or in a larger context like stuff about you know labor rights and and like migrant labor on farms and and things that like okay don't just make a passing reference explain uh what you're talking about in a way that you wouldn't not just a normal conversation but my experience um as a writer yeah you don't want to sail past the importance yeah because i have all this experience like hosting those uh, fed dinners where i would invite people over to my home, feed them dinner, talk for like four hours and record it and turn that into like a 500 to a thousand word column and I could move things around all over the place and segues and it doesn't matter who said what, when. Um, and I, you know, it was just so long as it was fine in print and radio does not work like that. Yeah. Well, you were telling me that you record hours of conversation and then collapse it into what, 28 minutes or something? Yeah, the first episode, I mean, the shortest dinner was like an hour and a half and the longest was three hours. And it was three hours, it was really riveting, you know, and that was the one with um, with Chris and Jen, who were these two sort of frenemies or genemies. <laughs> um, the restaurant owner and the restaurant critic she blames for killing a restaurant. And it was like a really interesting, captivating, frightening, um, awkward there's no other word for it dinner but really riveting because of that and then the mandate from the beginning was leave them wanting more and cut it down to something that's you know snack sized you know your morning commute sized um even though a lot of you know shows that i like that you like are hour and 20 minutes sometimes yeah i I can listen to i listen to a paul f Tompkins. he was you know he's been on every show he does there's that Pistol Shrimps radio show yes, yeah. where they're just co- sort of commenting, live commenting on a basketball game. Yeah. We had the director of the documentary. <laughs> and it's, you know, I just, the old expression, I could listen to so-and-so read the phone book, which is great. We're not making that kind of show. Right. Yeah. I mean, this show rambles. I know that. That's the, it, which is fun and you're great at getting people back on point. Yeah. And it gradually became, in the if you listen back to the first year, which I, can't do anymore because it hurts my heart Mm -mm. but if you listen to the first few episodes you can really tell that i'm cutting out digressions and then past like the summer i started realizing no the digressions are actually they inform the they inform everything they inform the guests they inform the the context is all yeah and what people are passionate about and and they care about and sorry uh, you know what let me lend a hand you have graciously invited me to be a return guest maybe the first return guest second Oh, sorry. Christian Brune did a Christmas episode. Brilliant. Uh, either way, I appreciate it. And to put a pin back on the board of where we are, the movie Big Night. I would have got you. Why did I choose it? When did I first see it? I would have got there. That's the other question I always somehow ask. Um, but, well, before we do that, I want to finish on the Tempano thing. So, tempano. is it possible to make a good Tempano? Because I've had a couple it's that were possible to make a good 
craft dinner. Right. You know, it's possible to make either, making air quotes, elevated, which is the term we use for like making fancy and expensive, um, or a simple rustic version of anything. You know, I've had, you know, like the most simple meals and I've had the most complex meals. Timpano, let's let's explain what it is. In the movie, it's presented as, you know, when the the, the, the brother... Character, the chef is finally convinced this is important. This dinner, you should care. And he says, "Okay, well then I'm going to make this dish." And his, you know, and then Stanley Tucci is saying, "Oh, we don't have the time. It's too complex. Of course, it's the best thing ever. But no, we can't do it. Okay, we're going to do it." And he makes this thing. They start making a fresh pasta dough. They roll it out. They roll out one layer and lay that uh, a big sheet on the inside of a large bowl, and then also roll out and shape little pieces of garganelli that they mix inside the bowl along with hard-boiled eggs, sausages, sauce. Well, basically, like, it's like a kitchen sink casserole uh, with pasta on the outside and more pasta on the inside. Like, what is the point of hand-rolling the garganelli-shaped pasta if it's just going to be stuffed inside another thing? Like, what... Why not just loosely chop it? What difference does it make? Um, Added to which, I mean, I grew up with, I grew up with foods that in which a hard boiled egg was on the inside of something. So I don't think it's gross. I think Mm -hmm. most people are not excited to find a hard boiled (laughs) egg inside of something. It's not exotic. And certainly the version they make in the movie when they take it out and they caress it like it's a newborn baby and they kind of tap it and they hear it and they smell it. And, and, you know, there's a sort of, um, there's a, brown gold buttery sheen oh, yeah. to the finished you know the the, the text it's got this texture and luster and it, you know they're so excited and they're so like they're proud parents of it and of course it seems appealing and yeah the best version of it would be great and they talk about no it's drying out you don't want it to dry out well yes the the best version could be great certainly like just the same as like i grew up on a meatloaf which had a hard-boiled egg on yep. the inside yep. and it also because it was my father who learned to cook from his mother and they were both terrible cooks didn't know how to brown meats didn't know about sauteing onions before you mix them in with something so that they were like half-cooked onions that were still kind of acrid yeah, in the center of, of this thing and pooled bits of what I now know to be kind of coagulated grayish blood <laughs> in, the, in on the little crevice it was really awful and I was like well meatloaf is terrible and then as a teenager I was at a friend's house and he said, um, oh, we have meatloaf. Do you want some? I was like, oh, that's the worst thing ever. And he was like, you have Portuguese meatloaf? And I tasted this thing and realized that, uh, and now can understand that it had been braised in tomato sauce and it was properly, they also know how to use salt. Right. And it didn't have, you know, a hard egg <laughs> in the center and half-cooked onions. I was like, oh, this can be delicious. And later in a restaurant, you know, where I was a cook, I had someone make a meatloaf and then, cut it into wedges and then fry it on the flat top and oh, get the sides good. crispy. That would work. Oh. And, it, you know, of co- anything can be simple. It can be complex. It can be delicious. And it can be, you know, the food that I grew up with. It, it, that part is immaterial. I'm just saying the actual dish of the timpano on itself, the version they present and the love with which they present it, of course, sounds great. But the actual dish... You know, and my wife, who all through this movie who was not super into it, but when it got to the food, she's ooing and aahing, and she can't wait. We're planning a trip to Italy, by the way. Yes, yeah, she's very excited. But when they sliced into that tempato, she, the, 
there's an insert shot, which is supposed to be a beauty shot, when they're pulling out a sort of cake yeah. wedge of it. She turns and she goes, it doesn't look good at all. It needs She's to be right. dripping with sauce or something. It just felt yeah, like, like it so. looks dry in the movie. Yeah, and, and I and think... The difference, that I was going to say, the last time I saw Big Night with people, it was at a friend's house and she insisted on making timpano. Mm. And it came with, aside, a giant bowl of fresh tomato sauce mm. that we mm. could add... Mm-hmm. as we see fit and I have just watched the movie it's like oh that's what's wrong yes because that was fantastic good for your friend I, I love it no I, hard I would absolutely problem. she's right if I were serving that I would cut it in slices and as they were sliced I would sauce each one with a bit of tomato sauce and then a, a fistful of parmesan on top right and then it's it's going to be delicious but like no more so than had you simply cooked Pasta with sausage and tomato sauce. Like, ultimately, yeah. that's... And just offered it to people. Yeah. yeah. Well, we watched it last week. You know, I've seen it several times, mm-hmm. including I once... I, like, I hosted a screening of this in a movie theater one time. Which one? The Toronto Underground Cinema. Oh, interesting. It was movie theater. So people always ask me... I don't know why I said that. Like, I'm such a big shot. People always... People come up to me on the street. They say, Sir... It's the price you pay for being a media personality. When I... So I used to write a column where I would invite people over to my house for dinner. I did 275 of them. And people sometimes ask me, who is your favorite guest? And I had some people who were in this city at least notable. My favorite guests of all times were those three sweet bozos who were each like, I think they were like 23, maybe 24, who had found an abandoned movie theater in Chinatown. And convinced the landlord to like let them rent it and operate it. And I had them over for dinner and they were just the nicest, most naive nerds who obviously had no business experience, didn't know what they were doing. And it was so beautiful and infectious, their you know, their excitement for that thing. And and of course they weren't talking about like how to properly program and budget and you know salary and taxes and, and, and marketing. Instead, they were just like all the movies they wanted to show and, and combine. And, you know, I, I thought they were really wonderful and, and wanted to support them as much as I did. Obviously, they ended up uh, not being able to sustain it. And uh, one last, I wanted to have a screening there before they closed. And so uh, I did a screening of big night and I just invited uh, friends and I think invited like 25 or 30 people and I made it just a giant vat of some basic pasta yeah. like nothing complicated but like some something pasta maybe maybe some meat maybe not and like a ragu and, and just served it to them but like hey it, would be, it wouldn't be nice to have a meal yeah. a little Italian food in the theater while watching this movie and it was really it, it it was terrific and I didn't even watch the movie because I was going back and forth and we were, I was writing a column and we were writing actually I'm, I'm thinking on it now and I realize I'm curious to reread that column I haven't but it would have linked you know what they were doing with what the characters Primo and Secondo were sure, doing yeah. in the movie which is ultimately it's a story about failure right oh yeah it's about you know this and, and I'm, I'm really curious about your take on it because you know, I don't know how many times I've seen it, but definitely three or four. And I watched it last week with Victoria. And you can see, you know, the themes are set up very early on and very clearly about, you know, art versus commerce. 
um, and this relationship with the brother and, you know, failure and disappointment and how you're going to deal with that and, you know, to, to, to jump ahead and include spoiler alerts for the end of the movie. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's fine. It came out 22 years ago. Um, these we, two we brothers. Not a... I mean, I pitched, I pitched to Victoria as not an, as... Not as an Alice and Janney movie, but I knew she, <laughs> she was like, you remember the mother from I, Tanya? You liked her so much? And I sent her like a clip of the Alice and Janney's scene, which is, like, she's great. She, she is, really is, she's right? Great. She's fantastic. She's a very small role. She's wonderful in it. So so Vic was down and I said, it's a story of um, two brothers, uh, immigrants from Italy in 1950s New York, running a failing Italian restaurant and across the street, they're trying to run this authentic uh, 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 restaurant with their serving the true food of their youth from Italy. And across the street, there's this red sauce joint run by Ian Holm, and they hate him, and they hate it. And it's all kind of a bit of cat and mouse, unspoken, but he's lording his success over them. And, you know, that's the story of the movie. The plot of the movie is that he tells them he's going to help them by getting his friend Louis Prima to come visit the restaurants, give him, give him this big boost. And they're going to be popular, and they throw a big uh, party for Louis Prima and spend their last dollar doing it, and it's an amazing experience. And not only does he not show, but he was never going to show. The Ian Holm character tricked them not to punish Stanley Tucci for sleeping with his wife, which he was doing, but to break their backs and spirits so that Stanley Tucci and his brother would come work for him. At which Stanley Tucci tells him, you will never touch. My brother has artistry that you can never even imagine. And I'm paraphrasing here. He gives a much better speech. It's pretty close. Um, but he basically tells him, my brother's an artist. And Ian Holm asks him the question, which is not answer the movie. He says, and what are you? And this is the, the, the conflict that I don't really know. I love the ending of the movie. It's, it's so good. Um, and it, it still doesn't answer the question for me. You know, we, we, we see these characters are now, they're brothers, they're together, they're divided. One is trying to just, he's trying to run a business, the other just wants to be an artist. One is trying to make all these compromises, the other doesn't want to compromise. We ultimately see as we go into the third act, you know, the Tony Shalhoub brother, he's, he's disenchanted. He's calling his uncle in Rome. He's saying, I'm ready to leave, come back to Rome. You got a job for me. And the Stanley Tucci is like... We know he's willing to sell out on some level already, but by what he's, you know, willing to lie to his brother. That's the initial deception. He's yeah. willing to lie to his girlfriend. Um, but it is left with this question at the end of, like, what are you? Which is particularly poignant to me, given I've been having this conversation a lot lately about, I think, a big problem in food media is the chef being presented as the artist and the restaurateur being represented as a business person and really a lot of their skill and talent being invisible and not credited. Right, which, of course, that's the problem, right? If it's done well, the restaurant is praised for its food and no one ever says, and the lighting's great. Sure. But the lighting's great. Yeah, and and, and I wrote a whole, like, 1,200-word article about restaurant lighting, and and it was fascinating to me, even someone who appreciated lighting, to learn little bits, you know, about, like how you dim the lights at sunset with the sunset if you're doing it really right yeah. and no one should notice because you all notice when you're in a restaurant and suddenly it's like somebody just flicked out the lights you go oh I was in the middle of an intimate conversation um, but th- th- there's a line 
there's a line about that in the movie. Um, it's just I'm trying to remember it now. There's something about. Oh, I can't remember it now. It's it's it's, it's, it's eluding me. But there's something that like kind of addresses the. I guess the idea that like he's not really. Oh, is it the thing about is it the napkins and tablecloths or something like that? I remember. There's a bit of that. I can't remember, but it comes out. You know, the first scene in the movie, Stanley Tucci is like setting up the restaurant, and he's straightening a chair here and there. And you know, I know people. I know this restaurant. I interviewed one time. He like his. He's got a thousand staff. He has a thing. He trains people. Like, you take a string and you run it from one end to the restaurant to. Uh, to the end and the tables should line up and the chair should line up and the napkin should line up like you should be that precise and there is all manner of that going on that mm-hmm. is like no less fastidious than you know I knew someone who did a stage at the French Laundry Thomas Keller's restaurant and he told me like you're only allowed to chop four chives at a time because a fifth one it would bruise the chives <laughs> and like, you know and maybe that's true and maybe it's not but that is exalted, whereas the other thing is is looked at as being a micromanager. Yeah. Um, because, and this is the problem that recurs in restaurants is, you know, this is part of the problem with the tipping model is that essentially like one side of the business is seen as artistry and the other side is seen as mercenary. And so you get people coming and going because at least in North America, it's different in Europe, I'm told. You know, they're not seen and they're not treated as creative people and as and they're and they're but they also earn twice as much as the cooks yeah so there's a huge gap between them and then the food media which i'm guilty of this as well promotes the chef as these creative geniuses these these artists these rock stars which in turn results in the chefs now i'm getting on my high horse again exploiting the acolytes who come their way because they want to be artists and rock stars too yeah Come bask in my genius, and I will pay you almost nothing, and you'll probably lose a thumb, but you can yeah. come bask in my genius. So some situations where they literally learn earn nothing. Yeah, sure, internships, which I I don't necessarily object to a hundred percent because there's certain situations there. It's weird, right? Like there's a place for it, but everything has to line up in just the right way. You have to be able to finance it yourself. Like it's 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 the nature of privilege. It's the defining nature of the business that feeds on people's goodwill, right? If you're willing to put yourself in this situation, I will exploit the hell out of you, and you'll probably get something on your resume later. Yes. But it's... Well, the the word exploit is worth um, dissecting, Mm. right? Because, like, I know a guy I used to cook with back when I was a cook at a fancy Italian restaurant. He now works at Noma. Okay. And so he's at the absolute top of the culinary food chain. And this guy, like, he's brilliant, you know, he deserves his success, and he um, he really disagrees with me on this point that, like, in my view, at least in Europe, the world's best restaurants, I'm saying that in quotation marks, the ones that get on these lists, often, or at least I've heard this from the horse's mouth, two-thirds of the kitchen staff are working for free. Two-thirds. That's not business. Um, that, to me, is, you know, unfair, um, that's not a good business practice. There's no excuse for it. And yet these really, these places really are like Mount Olympus, you know, they really are like, you go up there, you're going to have this experience. That's not just a check mark on your resume, 
where you come back and you say, I cooked here, because a lot of people have done that, or who knows what you did there. Maybe you were the idiot who they told to beat it after a week. Right. But really, you go in there, hopefully it's because you've earned your place there. Um, you are going to learn so much that it probably is a fair trade for you to be working for free there, just to just to learn you know, at the ham of the genius. However, as you say, there's the issue of only people who can afford to go and work there for free can do that. And that doesn't necessarily mean rich people. In, in a lot of cases, it's the young cooks I know, these 25-year-olds who are like sweating it out in the kitchen for minimum wage, often less than minimum wage, and saving their, their shekels to go do this, who in the end, yeah, like still have a leg up on someone else who like just just can't, you know, yeah. just doesn't have like even that bottom rung uh, of the economic uh, ladder. So yeah, anyway, me and my, the, 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 this, this guy who recently liked something that I wrote and he told me, I was like, yeah, hey, when are you back? Um, which was critical of, of, of chef culture. But um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a big uh, problem. And I think the issue where, where we got divided on was like the idea that some of the world's best restaurants are sort of lauded which is fine, but it's omitting how they get to the level of greatness that it's not just, they're not on an even playing field. Like they're not competing with other places because the other places don't have that army uh, of free labor. Yeah. You know, which is, and it's all the more sort of heartbreaking watching um, the, the, the Tony Shalhoub character in, in Big Night. Premium. Yeah. Again, they don't even have names. It right. It's so so perfectly distills how devoted they are to, to one another and to their restaurant is that they mm. really only identify by function older and younger premium older second, and younger and, and, and the names of the the, the, the meat the meat course that's the, like the fish and the meat course right I think in so Italian um, yeah I mean and it would seem that they were born for this purpose right yeah they're, they're from a restaurant family in Italy that's the bit of backstory we've gotten we don't know if there are any more siblings or if they are, are important at all and there are no other title cards in the movie other than during the meal where it's introduced the you know the soup and the the primi and the secondi and and I, I i connect so much with that moment of um the soup is served and we don't know anything about the soup we just see the soup is served it comes to everybody and they all we just see the reaction shots they're fanning themselves with the their adoration for it. it's the first course and then as the plates come back in the kitchen, uh, 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 Primo, or is it Primo or Primi? Primi, I believe. Oh, no, maybe He's, it is Primo. Primo and Secondi. He sees the plates come back, and and the people bringing the, the plates back give him this sort of nod, like, yeah, they're loving it. They're loving it out there. And he gives this sort of, like, very tight, controlled little nod of pride yeah. that he, up until that point, we've only seen the angry resentful part of his pride and now we see the the happy self-satisfied but part of his pride that is what he lives for and even though like i haven't cooked professionally in a decade i know that feeling i know that feeling is a home cook i still have it even when like if you come over for dinner or brunch and you know at a certain point you're hopefully i'm getting those those oohs and ahs and you're loving something and you're what did you do with the brisket and I'm going eh I braised it and it's just a bit of chili it's not you know and I'm trying to play it I'm absolutely 
affecting modesty. And I'm, I'm, I, I love these compliments. It makes me happy, even though that's not my job. But like, even, even when it's just, I'm cooking for one, and it's just my wife, and she loves something. We were watching it last week, Big Night, and I, I, I don't know why I keep saying the name of the movie. Like, <laughs> you've listened this far on the podcast. Like I'm it. like, I jumped in halfway. What's well, the name have, of the movie? You have done another episode. People might mistakenly think this is the Planes, Trains, and Automobiles right. episode. So halfway through Planes, Trains, no. So we started. So I made a lasagna last week. I was. I think I had a bunch of tomato sauce in the freezer, and I wanted to use it up, and I wanted something Italian, but I wanted something. I wanted something. She likes to start eating at the beginning of a movie, and I wanted her to have food halfway through the movie. Okay. So I wanted an excuse to have a delay. So I wanted to be, and also I didn't have time earlier in the day, so I made the lasagna, assembled it at like five o'clock, and uh, and I made it a little spicy too. I mixed some bomba in with the tomato sauce, and I got the refresh ricotta, you know, from Grace. Oh yeah. Grace meats, so good, unbelievable. Anyway, I made the lasagna. I was like, we'll have it a little later, and then I was gonna fry up some um, Brussels sprouts for. I know she likes Brussels sprouts at the beginning of the movie, and I fried them up, and then I was like. You gotta make it a little more Italian and I just drenched them in olive oil and I found some olives in the fridge and threw those in and I had some confit garlic and I threw that in and I had some caramelized onions and I threw that in and some pickled uh, red peppers and I threw that in and it started to get very nice and I did that thing where I tossed the you know the pan and brought it for her to smell and I and I brought it and even you know just just cooking for her and that's you know one of my favorite things about marriage is like Getting those oohs and ahs when she started eating, she's, you know, because I know the difference between like, thanks for making dinner, hun, and, oh, yeah. you know, the actual like, I'm really enjoying food and being alive right now, and I want this moment to last because food is delicious, and when it's delicious, we want it forever. Yeah. Yeah, we want it to go on, and it, it can't go on. Well, it's that moment, yeah, the moment in Big Night, which is one of my favorite moments in, I think, honestly all of cinema is just that beat where the woman starts to cry and says her mother was a terrible cook <laughs> and it's it captured something mm. that no I mean in night when I saw it the first time anyway in 1996 no other film had ever brought into focus for me which is that a, the concept of a life-changing experience can simply be that mm. that sense that you've suddenly become aware of something else that you never And could. do you mean not only what you, you... You've become aware of it, but you've realized what you've been missing exactly. out on yeah. for so and long? Exactly, yeah. And it's played yeah. for comedy, but that woman is experiencing a yeah. tragic moment where That's she's... That's how I felt when I tasted my friend's Portuguese meatloaf. I was like, yeah. this is what... This is what it could have been. Yeah. And I... I when... Uh, I, I told you this before we started rolling, but Stanley Tucci still owes me an interview for this. He stood me up. It was mm. supposed to be him and Shaloub together. At TIFF, <clears throat> and he got delayed. Thing in 1996. In 1996, I'm I think old. The statute of limitations might be up on that debt. And yet, hasn't happened yet. So I think I'm still owed. Uh, but but Dan I was just. You, if you're listening, you've been called out, bro. Well, it was just me and Shaloub. Mm-hmm. Me and Shaloub. That sounds great. Uh, but it was the two of us, and he's the one who didn't write or direct it. Mm-hmm. So he suddenly has all this responsibility to represent the movie, and he's and he was really. He was really great about it, but he was saying, it's like, you know, this is really a question mm. for the script. And I was like, but what about this thing? And he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't write that. I just performed the lines. <laughs> like, yeah, but you performed. He was just completely self-effacing. Yeah. And there is a wisdom to the screenplay of Big Night that I attribute to actors who have spent their entire careers watching other people discover things and learn things and be things. And that's who Secondo is. 
He's the guy who's been paying attention. When you ask, like, what are you? He's the guy who knew how to package his brother. He's the guy who knew how to set up the restaurant. Mm-hmm. He's the person who knew how to how to plate, how to set everything up and let the talent how, come in. How to make sure his shy brother yeah. had... How to make sure the girl he liked was invited. Exactly. And to push he's, them together. Yeah, and he's been managing his brother, not professionally, their whole lives. It's mm-hmm. so clear. By, the point, by that point in the movie, when we get to that... We know who Secondo is, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing that the film has. It's the insight into these characters who are so consumed with the thing that they do that they have lost touch with who they are. And even, like, Primo's not connected to himself either. He's incredibly awkward and only wants to, only wants to cook and does it beautifully, but at the expense of literally every other relationship he's ever had, including the one with his brother, which is so fractured at the end that it might not be repaired. And, like, that's what this movie gets, that so many other... And this was this was the indie boom of the mid-90s, mm-hmm. when every New York actor was making five films oh, yeah. with, like, Greg Mottola or Nicole Holofson, or they were all... Well, she was working in L.A., but All I did all was watch stuff. movies in the 90s, so... You know this. I saw every movie starring Stanley Tucci or Steve Buscemi or Christopher Walken or Parker Posey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is one of the rare non-Miramax ones that we can still feel good about today. It's not Miramax? No, Sony, Sony had it. And, um, nice. Yeah. And there is, a, there is a level of emotional intelligence to it that I think people always forget. Because they always talk about the food. And I, mean, I did it to you. It's like, do you have a food movie? It's like, yeah, I could have just said, do you have a really great small drama about mm-hmm. a place and time and people who don't have self-knowledge but just want to be better than they are or more successful and don't understand that that's not going to make them happy it's just like it is I think it is a perfect film really like to the point where watching it again the last time Ian Holmes performance actually works in context mm-hmm. and I always thought that it was too big but that's who he is like they you know you get a Ian Holmes he's either going to go really big or really he's small he's super big I guess in the context of the movie because other people are playing it a little small although you know they are doing these very silly yeah. Italian accents they're comic performances but Ian Holmes, he's, I, I just I've met people like yeah. him, like restaurateurs, and there are people who want to fade in the background, and the ones who just want to be the center, not even necessarily because they're egomaniacs or because they need attention, but because they've convinced themselves that their personality is what people come to the restaurant for. Yeah, you know, because I think the character's introduced. He's like lighting something on fire for a table. And they're all wowed, and it's it's schlocky. And then he comes over to Stanley Tucci, and he goes like, "Did you fucking see that? Yeah. What I just did?" Yeah. And like he has to constantly be re- like, he's the kind of guy who will laugh at his own jokes and has to relive his own successes so that everybody acknowledges it. Yeah. Like I've, that's not Those too big at all. Pe- yeah. And yeah. what it, what occurred to me this time, for the first time for me anyway, was that he's leaning into his own stereotype. Like he is playing up the Italian thing. Yeah. Because he's in this crappy seaside town or wherever they are in, in New York State and that's how he was successful. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's you know, the the old line about how you dress this you dress the way you dress from the best year of your life, that's when your fashion sense becomes fixed. I think it's a Seinfeld line which God help me, but I think mm-hmm. it's also true. Um, he is he is fixed in the personality that he was when he was first Exposed right, to applause. which was successful with the Americans who wanted to eat or were willing to eat Italian food yeah. during that era, which is like, oh, this cartoony version of it. I just remembered the, I yeah. just remembered the line, the artist versus commerce line. I told you, you come back to it. That yes, that it's inescapable because it's almost like uh, it makes you cry. 
um, when when Tony Shalhoub is he's learning what's going on and he says to his brother, you know, we don't we shouldn't need bells and whistles. They should come for the food. And Stanley Tucci says, yeah, but they don't. Yeah. And I've certainly seen that enough in restaurants, not just, I mean, in restaurants, in life, in writing, in yeah. journalism, for all these things. Yes, we should appreciate things for their integrity. But good luck if you're going to invest everything you've got in integrity. Yeah, it doesn't pay. I just keep wondering, you know, there, there will never, everybody, there was this piece on troll culture that's been really circulating online mm-hmm. about how don't feed the trolls is the worst thing we could have done because it just encourages them because they'll only get bigger if you don't like mm-hmm. if they don't get the response they want and it's like yeah everybody keeps waiting for the big pivot towards decency but just <laughs> it's like integrity to decency. it's never gonna happen the only thing you can do is be a good person on yeah. your own and just not not try to influence anybody else through shaming because that doesn't work but you also can't you know you can say like uh, Everybody, oh, everybody always brings up the whole. Oh, you're a film critic. You can, you know, you can destroy a movie. It's like, no, I can't. I can, I can write a negative review, but people still go see Wolverine, um, X Men Origins, Wolverine, or whatever it was. It's like those movies. Did are, you write a bad review of X Men Origins, Wolverine? I did. That's why that movie tanked. Did not. Yeah, it didn't make any more Wolverine dollars. movies after that. Ugh, but but you know, like the harder thing is to convince people that I can't get people to go see good movies. Yes. That I spend all this yes. effort writing about stuff that war- that that deserves you your don't eyeballs. care that much about trying to tear down something yeah. that you think is bad like that thing will get its own just rewards it yeah. doesn't really matter that the, what you love is seven whatever it yeah. has to be a transformers movie because that's my thing now apparently but no, you want to share with people things that are amazing i had an amazing experience last night by the way i went to um a restaurant um so I accidentally I got this email from Chris Smith, restaurant critic, mm-hmm. and it was like an unedited series of notes about a Mexican restaurant. Okay. And it was like clearly he had been twice, and he had all these, and so half of it was like stream of consciousness kind of babble with like really intricate descriptions of some dishes and some stuff, just like list of ingredients or like what sodas they carried. And I emailed him, I emailed a few friends. I was like, hey, we're going for dinner on Monday. I think Chris gave me this great tip, but he hasn't published this review yet or finished writing it. We should go. And I emailed him to say thanks. And he's like, oh, fuck, I meant to email that to myself. <laughs> From another account, I said, well. As soon as you started describing it, it's like, ah, draft folder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said, it auto-completed your name and it sent to you. I said, I won't tell anyone, but I'm going to this restaurant. And I went to this restaurant. Unbelievable. Really? Unbelievable. So fantastic. Definitely the best Mexican meal I've had in in Toronto. Um, and a, a little space that was, I kid you not, the actual restaurant may be like 180 square feet. <laughs> like Where three tables. What? I think they do a bunch of catering. What part it's of up the in like Jane and Lawrence. All right. Bigger kitchen in the back. They do a bunch of catering. But like we had an amazing meal. And it's been like ten years since I was since I was a critic, um, but I still remember the feeling of knowing, like this review's about to come out, and I, I like a critic can't open or close a restaurant anymore, any more than you know you can open or close a movie. Yep. Um, but it's going to be great for her business. Like it's a small business in a part of town that doesn't get written about a lot it's going to be wonderful she just opened a few months ago we're talking to her she opens at 5 30 every morning to serve like 
people doing shift work. Okay. It's an amazing restaurant, and she's working so hard. And she was asking, she was like, we don't got a lot of white folks around here. How did you find out of us? And I said, yeah, a friend told me. She's like, how did your friend find out? <laughs> and I said, well, it's just business. To know. And I wanted to tell her, like, oh, you've got such good news coming your way. Yeah. But I knew, like, that's not my place. place. Yeah. To tell her that it is, you know, he gets to make the call. Because I know what it's like to make the call to say, I need to get a few details about your hours and your address because I've written this nasty review of your restaurant. Um, and it was always, I learned, like, just never tell them anything about that. Although I don't know that that was the right way to go. I probably wouldn't do that again now. Um, but that she was going to be getting this call, you know, any day now was, it was so exciting to be close to that. Close to no, like she was about to get Louis Prima coming to her yeah, restaurant I, to to bestow this thing on her and say like I'm gonna tell everybody you're great and they should come eat here, um, and that feeling is is so wonderful particularly because you know you see people struggling every everybody who opens a restaurant uh, well not sorry not everybody some people are jackasses with too much money who never should have you know. <laughs> laced up their gloves in the first place. Yes, we've all but, read that um, Toronto Life story. I love that story. And I have communicated <laughs> with that guy who wrote the I never should have opened a restaurant yeah. and I squandered my kids' home, literally. Like, they sold their home yeah. for that restaurant. What a bozo. But thank you for writing this story, which I genuinely believe will act as a scarecrow against other people. Who It's hard to convince people not to do that. But when you do see people who like, no, you should have opened a restaurant. You're really good at this. But you deserve... That people should know, you know, and in an era where like traditional journalism and, you know, Jonathan Gold just passed away last week, very young, um, people actually doing shoe leather reporting to tell other people like there's this great little Mexican place at Jane and Lawrence. There's this great little Italian restaurant. Uh, in fact, we get that so close scene at the end of the movie that there was we realized one of the guys at the party taking photos. Yeah is like working for some newspaper that he he tells him, look, look, I just came here to cover Louis Prima and I got no story, but I promise you I'll, I'll get like a critic out to review you and he doesn't know it's too late. It's going to be just too late yeah. and they won't have gotten that. Um, it's... Yeah. Well, that's the tragedy of it, right? Like, yes. if, it, if it ended well, no one would remember this movie. That's, no, like, it's that's a, the, the awful thing about script structure and narrative. Yeah, it has what a, to be a tragic ending. What, I, I, and you know, like I'm trying to remember the first time I saw it, which would have been in the '90s, where I saw it, not because I was. I think it, it came out the year that I was in cooking school, actually. Okay. But I didn't see it because I was in love with food. I saw it because it was the '90s, and I saw every movie. We all did. It was a better time. It was. Let's agree that it was a different time. You could keep up. It was a better time. I mean, I could get on a plane with a knife. I don't know if that <laughs> makes it any better. That's a good. Thing. But. uh you know, I remember I remember being along with the story and feeling, of course, this great disappointment and, and anger, you know, that Louis Prima hasn't showed up. Of course, now I understand story structure a bit better, and I'm like, of course it's more satisfying that yeah. things not work out, but and I guess this brings us back to, I still haven't actually asked this question to you, what do you think becomes of the brothers, and what do you think they've learned at the end of the story? I th- Honestly... Um, oh, who was it? It might even have been. Let's Stephen. say it's Oscar Wilde. No, I think he said it was everything. Stephen King, I think. <laughs> okay, was um, 
No, of course it's Stephen King. Uh, it's the end of Stand By Me, or The Body. It's the end of The Body, where the characters all come up with other ways for the story to end. The, the mm-hmm. story of um, the kid in the pie-eating contest that ends with spectacular vomit on everybody. Uh, each one of the kids who's hearing Gordy tell that story... The pie-eating story or the body story? The pie-eating story. It's within yeah. the, the short story of the body. I think maybe it even made it into the movie. But each one of the kids has a different way of continuing the story, and they all want to, you know, like, they all want to know what happens next. And Gordy says, it's just, it's over. That's just where it ends. Mm-hmm. The, the, he says, I declare this contest... I, I think he says, I declare this contest uh, over. Like the, It's a terrible last <laughs> But the narrator, like, the, 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 the protagonist of the story simply says, this is over. And that's the end of the story. And it's supposed to be the punchline. But all three of his audience, all, every one of his friends, wants to know what happens next. Mm-hmm. And... He can't give them an answer, and they all make their own thing up. Like um, the kid with the troubled home life says, he goes home and he kills his dad. And, like it's, they're all just projecting. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, Gordy is right. It ends where it ends because that's where it has to end, yeah. and we can't know. But I want to think that, given the setting of the film, one of them goes back to Italy, one of them stays in America, and they never see each other again. Mm. And it's a, a greater tragedy. Like so, this, this you restaurant. Want to see your emotional needs are for. It's story a, resolution and, and structure and, and irony. And my needs are that it has to be worse. Not that you want people to be happy. Well, the point of the film, like the, the way it ends, is that they clearly, finally understand clearly, each other. T- Sh- Tony Shalhoub is defeated and he goes back to Rome like he was planning on doing. Right. The question is... What does Sekundo do? What does the Tooch do? I think he stays. I don't know what he does, mm-hmm. but I think he stays. And I think because the film is set in the... like the time that it is set in where distance is an even greater divide where mm-hmm. there is no communication that is easy I think that's the point these two people who have lived together and been together for their entire lives this is the last night this is where it's over I disagree with you because um, having spent time uh, living with a primatologist um, who like made me watch a bunch of like videos of um uh, orangutans and and, and and capuchins and and, and various uh, uh, apes, um, apes and monkeys. That the like the 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 universal is uh, physical act for uh, is, is is it reconciliation the, mm. the the phrase I'm looking for? But oh, like the, the omelet, the well, it's the putting the arm around the shoulder. Right. Like animals do this to symbolize that they have uh, forgiven each other for whatever squabble they have, which in the animal kingdom is like pretty fucking primal. Oh, right? I see what you mean. No, I don't think that they are angry forever. I think they're just never going to see each other again. I think this is oh, the thing okay, that okay. shatters their bond. Right. They but will move apart and they, maybe they will yeah, like, oh, my brother, I love him. He's in Italy. But yeah, like, they finally understand each other. I, mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. They've seen each other for who they really are. Right. And it's not in a negative way. They finally understand who the other is. But this is the last time they'll be together. Like, yeah, that's, what, the, that's what makes it... Shalhoub's got to go back to Italy. He's he's crushed and he doesn't have any reason to stay here. Yeah. Secondo likes America. He's going to stick around. Well, he he's crushed. Women. He's financially he likes... defeated. <laughs> his relationship is, is squashed. He doesn't deserve another chance with his girlfriend. But he's going to go work for Ian Home. He's either gonna like he'll be. The he may not do that. Or... He may tr- he may go work somewhere else. Well, ultimately, the dream of starting his own place. But he 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 ultimately is prideful 
about wanting to be a business success. Yeah. And, and he, he also sees, I mean, he clearly sees Italy as a step back. Well, he says it early in the, yeah. in, the in, in the movie that, like, you can be successful in Italy and it doesn't mean anything. Or that, like, you can't do anything. And I don't know enough about, like, Italian politics post-World War II mm-hmm. to know what... But that's another thing, right? Think about where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Like, I've seen enough Rossellini films from that era to know that it's wreckage and misery. Well, maybe not misery. They seem to be pretty happy people, the two of them. Right. It hasn't been said how long they've been in America. Well, long enough that they haven't lost their accents. Long enough that they haven't... Well, plenty of people in this neighborhood right now have been here for 40 years. I'm thinking they probably came over either right after the war or during, Mm -hmm. or before maybe, but like 10 years earlier they came over. Mm. And this is who they are. Start working on our big night night fan fiction about... Better Call Primo. The the, the wartime experiences they had working as spies for the OSS. I mean, who would you cast as a young Stanley Tucci? Oh, CGI. CGI Tucci. Stanley Tucci with the two There's no, There's no young actor working today. But it's a weird place to come from, right? Because they're so fully Maybe formed. Jonah Hill. <laughs> He's slimmed down now. Yeah. Young Shaloub. Jason Menzik. I'm, I'm in. I mean, Jason Menzik, is, Jason Menzik is in everything. He can sure. play both brothers. I'm sold. I'm sold. But I think they really are so fully formed because Tucci and Campbell Scott know them so well. And we're, we don't speak nearly enough when people talk about this movie. Nobody talks about Campbell Scott because no, he's got two not. scenes and he's, very, he's being very silly. Mm-hmm. And he's delightful. But he co-directed this fucker. Like, he yeah. is part of this movie. And as much as Tucci's presence as an actor is important, Scott's sensibility as a visual filmmaker, because I've seen their second collaboration, The Imposters, which is not good, mm-hmm. but shows you all the things that they did together, like all their strengths yeah. are put into a different focus in the se- in the follow-up, not a sequel, but... Um, that they shouldn't have ever made because it's very bad. Right. But, but it was the 90s. It was the 90s. And if you had it, like that was Fox Searchlight, still doing mm-hmm. Max, but they managed to talk mm-hmm. another distributor and say, hey, you know, we're actors, we make movies. Yeah, sure. But but Campbell Scott, I think his, like his inherent waspiness really works to show you where they are uh, in, in 1950s mm-hmm. New York. Right? Yeah. Like that's him. Tucci can give you the cultural context for Primo and Secondo, or Primi and Secondo, I'm never going to get it right. Um, he gives you the brothers... And Scott gives you the setting and the collision of those two elements is what makes the movie so mm-hmm. like so perfect. It's a time capsule of a time that never really existed, but it's how everybody remembers it. It's how everybody wants to remember the 50s. There's no racism. There's no misery. Like, everybody's just sort of fucking with each other. They're not, there's no real anger here or there. I mean, probably, yeah, everything Ian Holm does is out of malice, but it's a good-natured malice. He's just, mm-hmm. he's like, he's getting rid of these guys, but he's letting them have a nice time while they do it. He's not fucking well, them Well, I... Like, I grew up uh, in, despite the fact that I grew up in the 80s, a period during which, you know, they were just about to get into 60s nostalgia, but 50s nostalgia was still very big, and, you know, the tentpole of that was was Back to the Future, Mm -hmm. but I also grew up with a, um, a grandmother who described the 1950s as the worst time In memory, I think because she was more of a socialist and she, you know, she wanted to impart to me, like, um, how it was just the most repressive era where one was really not free, you know, even in Canada, Mm. to speak your mind politically. So I always looked on the 50s as it got more and more, like when Tim Burton came in with his version of sort of like... Oh, the suburbia stuff. 
Yeah, with the sort of like, you know, the color saturation turned up even higher and sort of like a love hate yeah. weird weird sexual relationship fetishizing white bread America yeah. yeah but it was always like I was always filtering it through like my Bubby's words of like McCarthyism <laughs> and what that meant yeah. so the 50s is always sinister to me uh, but yeah Campbell Scott is great as the lollipop eating guy who's like Italian food well, I guess I'm up for something weird yeah um, who so shows up and is like yeah, his facial expressions are entirely appropriate. You're, you're right. He's a good, not every man, because he doesn't represent us, the viewer. He represents, like, what would the regular white middle class yeah. person who doesn't know anything about this uh, uh, say or feel at the time? Yeah. If it hadn't been Campbell Scott, the only other person mm-hmm. at that point in time, I think, would have been Kyle McLaughlin. To just have that certain type of the 50s... perfect white guy? 50s white bread guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone who... But who... You, the minute you look at him, something about, I don't know, his jaw or his cheekbones and his, the, the cut of his suit tells you he's never experienced the authenticity. Like, it's he's just... He's also a guy selling Cadillacs, right? Sure. He's going to tell you what you want to hear. Tell me a time in a movie that a car salesman has been depicted as, like, a multi-dimensional <laughs> character. Being. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's really the Robin Williams movie and that's it. And he's not genuine. Cadillac man? Yeah, that's the only other example. I, I mean, I hate to say, like, let's all, you know, let's all be sympathetic for <laughs> people, people who, yeah, people who sell cars, there like, they're underrepresented, decent. they're maligned in media. I have no idea. I've never bought a car. There must be decent ones out there somewhere. That's all you can think of. But the stere- yeah, the stereotype is just so ingrained. And that, yeah, the minute you see Scott, you know he's disreputable, because there's just something about him. He's, He's selling cars. That selling cars is shorthand for that, and it's convenient because it's two way street. Because shopping for a Cadillac is shorthand for Tucci's aspiration. Exactly. You know, for the the a symbol of the dreams that are at least for present beyond his reach. Not forever. He's an ambitious guy, and he's probably going to be willing to learn from this horrible yeah. experience, and he will have that Cadillac. But we won't be able to share it with his brother like you wanted. Oh, yeah. that's so sad. And his brother wouldn't have appreciated it anyway. Which is the thing he finally learns. Like, the whole point of Big Night mm. is understanding that what is important to one is not important to the other. Mm. And that's something that, oh, I've worked with people over the years who um, who just don't get it. Like, they, the, it's what we were talking about, about bullying and the understanding of other human beings I do think that empathy is something that not everyone has and you sometimes have to learn it and sometimes the best thing you can do for someone is say I don't want what you want like your priorities are not my priorities Mm. and that can be in a personal relationship that can be in a work relationship that can be in a casual interaction with a barista or whatever you just that moment of stepping back and realizing that they don't want the same thing is the thing that in Big Night has never happened for these two people. And finally it does. And because this is a movie and it's dramatic, that's the catharsis for the end of everything. Even if it's only the end of their restaurant and their professional relationship. This, the, we're here because this is the end of the thing. That's why we were watching this story. And I figured that out around the point in time when I started thinking, well, who would they get to play Louis Prima? Oh, he's not coming. And that made it work for me. And I was okay with it. Like, I was braced for it. But if you watch it a second time or third time with this knowledge that it's not going to work out, well, it's a I richer first, film. I mean, when I first saw it, I just... During the movie, I was like, so what? Is it going to be somebody, like, playing Louis Prima? Which I thought, that's fine. I don't know what Louis Prima is. Yeah, exactly. Like. 
Yeah, but I was just like something about the whole cut of the film just prepped me to figure out that it wasn't going to work. But you know, you summarized it in a way that like I, I could grasp those things, but I don't think I could have put it as well. And I and that's why I like talking to you about movies. I always learn something uh, that I wasn't seeing or understanding. But uh, you're right; it's not just about the the difference between these two people, but the rare occurrence of them understanding the difference yeah. and that they cannot pursue the same goals and they won't make each other happy which is um, that's a real tragedy especially when you think that you know imagining they don't have any other siblings that they have been the closest of friends and partners and brothers and collaborators for their whole lives and they appear to be about 40 yeah. so that's especially sad yeah but over the course of the movie we are led to understand why it's okay too like that's we get to see how they're not great for each other we get to see how they don't listen we get to see all the little flaws personality and and behavioral that have built up over the years it's a like it's a great film because it understands and in the end it's okay with it too like the movie that that sequence at the end that incredible unbroken shot single take absolutely no dialogue of just people in a kitchen existing together and enjoying mm. this moment because it's something they can all agree on it's like you get all the, you get the resentment you get the forgiveness you get the absolution and at the end it doesn't matter if they ever see each other again because they understand each other and mm. that's what happens and I know I'm going to dig a grave for this one but that's what happens when actors get to make a movie because they spend all their time thinking about nothing else. Like thinking about how would I feel? What is this person doing? Why are they doing it? And it's the thing that filmmakers who've never acted miss sometimes. It's the arguments. It's the internal fighting over what a character would or wouldn't do. All these little questions mm -hmm. that actors have to solve for themselves before they ever step on a set. That's how this film was written. Mm -hmm. And so you get this perfect emotional engine. Well, I mean, the, the the fact that he's he's planned out and he's rehearsed and he's performed that he would like crack the egg, whisk it a bit, and then have a towel be in his way and move that, yeah. and then whisk it a bit more in a way that like you're not just casually improvising. This is oh no, especially if it's a single take, they must have planned that down to the second. Yeah, yeah, but and they also know why they're doing it. Yeah, it's really, and, you know, I, I didn't get this when I, I think the first time I saw it, but the, the, the fact that he is, so to, 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 to set this up for the listener who for some reason either, like, never saw the movie or um, has, has seen it, and like, oh, I'll just listen to that episode, but, like, maybe you haven't seen it, because in a while, it came yeah. out 22 years ago. It's kind of hard to find, too. That, you know, after this, like, this night that had they had all this promise and it didn't work out and they had this final tear down fight between them and they've lost everything the next morning they Tucci uh, wanders uh, uh, hung over into the kitchen finds one of the his, his, his employee sleeping on the counter Mark Anthony Mark Anthony Mr. who Jennifer married Lopez. somebody J-Lo yeah okay he's I very good were, in this I movie I think they were together at the time and it was a big deal that he could act oh whereas, really whereas I didn't know any of this and just oh. watched the movie and thought oh, I thought he was good. Rami Malek <laughs> he would be now. I was like, that's the guy from the Pacific. Yeah, uh, Mr. Robot 
fellow. He's also in that. Currently Mr. Robot. But the Tooch comes in, he's hungover, he and he starts making... He will only ever be the Tooch to you. Pardon? He will only ever be the Tooch to you. The Tooch? He's an, he's an institution, this man. <laughs> um, he makes scrambled eggs. He just, like, cracks some eggs, he whisks them, he, while he's heating up a pan on the stove, pours in olive oil, not butter, because they're Italian. Still how I do it. Stirs it with a, a wooden flat spoon very casually moves around the kitchen setting up the plates while it's still cooking has the very casual confidence and grace of a person who's made scrambled eggs a thousand times doesn't need to watch them knows exactly how long they take turns the heat off lets the residual pan of and this is not being cg'd or with wires or anything you know he's cooking on set comes around sets up a couple plates one for him one for the employee tears up a couple crusts of bread he sits down and then Tony Shalhoub comes in without even looking. He goes, grabs a plate. He's left a third in the pan. He's saved a portion for his brother, which I didn't didn't click when I first saw it. I yeah. thought, oh, there's just more in the pan. There's just plenty. No, no, no. He saved a third. Yeah, this guy's too fastidious to have done his this brother. accidentally. Yeah. yeah, he exactly. He knows. He knows not only that his brother will come, that he'll be hungry, that whatever will happen, the guy deserves some eggs. Yeah. Um, and that he loves him and wants to do for him in the way that like we want to when we understand that even when, you know, when, when we fight with people when we're angry and we can't come to a solution like we still love and respect the other person w- wouldn't deny them some scrambled eggs and it's been a couple of years since I've last watched it is it the only time we see Sekondi cook? I th- the very beginning of the movie he's he like chopping like- some garlic yeah. And later, I think he kind of no no. Later, he, he comes and he joins him making the stuff for the timpano because they're cooking together. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, but he kind of like he's just kind of jumping in and out doing that stuff. This is him just devoting himself to a thing. Yeah, and it's so to 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 jump ahead of uh, the Semcast's uh, uh, final question. Man, what if it. anything? Do it. You know where we're going. Well, as a nebulous industry figure. Because I was thinking about this, like, what do I take from my work and from this movie? And, I, you know, obviously I've never created anything this perfect, but um, it's, the, it's the faith of ending on the small moment. It's, you know, learning to trust if you've got a good story and you've told it well and you've conveyed your characters to their to the audience and what their conflict is that if there's a moment that might read as very small on its own and insignificant that you can have faith that the audience is with you and they're going to appreciate that small detail rather than your need to be a sort of Spielberg type of yeah, you know the flourish the essay the magazine essay writer because I get a note, notes from an editor sometimes they're like this feels like you need to say something at the end like what does this mean and, and sometimes that's very important you know you're doing like an investigated piece and you've got all these different parts of it and sometimes like no you're t- telling human stories and you have to trust that the characters are interesting and the audience is, is with them and they will find meaning in this moment and you don't have to hammer them over the head with it and that it can it can live on its own and, and I certainly have 
you know, the, the Kevin, who's, who's one of the producers at Canada Land, he's, we were editing in an episode of Test Buds, and he said, like, you don't have any that I've heard yet audible ticks. Like, everybody's got them. Yeah. Like, with Jesse, I edit them all the time. I can hear certain things he goes. I haven't noticed, like, your your things, but I know as a writer, you know as a writer, you're aware of your... Oh, God, yes. Your habits, right? I know I have a habit of ending on quotes. Oh, I do that all the time. I do it on the, on the podcast, too. I, I hate it when I have to end with myself. It just doesn't seem fair. Yeah, and sometimes, but sometimes you need to say it because the quote isn't there. Oh, yeah. More often than not, I just think that, like, when the quote's there, someone said some perfect thing, and then you feel like... You've got to say after what that means. You just, at a certain point, you learn to trust. No, you don't. Yeah. You can let the audience learn or in, intuit or eventually figure out what that means. Like, Yeah, and you've spent however okay. many minutes or hours listening or reading to the single thing. If you don't, like, if, you, if, the, if the listener or the reader doesn't understand what, I've been, what this person has been trying to say for the whole piece, then... I have failed already. There's nothing I can do to bring it back. And that's why we have shoes on. Like, you can't do that with yes. an interview. Yeah. Did I mention they were all cockroach people? Yeah, you can't. <laughs> and it's obviously, it's very different, the scale and the scope of the story you're trying to tell. You know, at 300 words, like, you ain't got room for subtlety. Sure. Um, but it's beautiful the way this plays out at the end of this movie and... I think, um, you know, when I first saw it, I liked it, and I probably didn't have as much patience for it. And when I saw it the second time, sometime maybe 10 years ago, I was just riveted by the final shot. I was completely mesmerized. Like, as it was playing out, I had the, you know, that experience you have when you've seen a movie before, and now you're appreciating it much more uh, on a number of levels, but specifically just, I realized, oh, this is the ending of the movie. This is how it ends. And I don't think there's anything more said. It just happens. And we're just watching this guy make eggs partly out of hunger, partly out of duty, partly out of love. And it's it's beautiful yeah. to watch. And, you know, I have to remind myself because it's, it's really very natural that, you know, just like any sequence with a lot of stunts or special effects, like they really, even though it seems like a pretty simple shot, they really had to rehearse the hell out of this, particularly because do it wrong, you're just going to start burning eggs, which I would imagine the care uh, that they had in that movie, they weren't going to allow to just pretend that the eggs hadn't been burnt. Yeah, they would have to go with it. Or they just shot it eight different times and fed everybody. Yes, yeah, I I, I, I had movie. thought but I was like cause I was trying to think like what mo- what food movie do you actually like because you know there's sort of it's not like it's a genre it's just every once in a while somebody makes a movie about food and usually it's it's something like burnt that everyone just piles on you know for for hating but um, well my problem with burnt and I don't have any problem with the pile on my problem with burnt is that it is like it's that asshole rock star culture thing it's just reinforcing what the movie thinks is cool about being a chef and none of that is cool like it's all just yeah. it's all just bullshit posturing and I know Bradley Cooper can cook I know he went to some level of culinary school even matter. before but yeah what it's doing what it's the vision that it is enabling is just gonna it's like you know it's like people watching The Hangover and not figuring out that his character is a sociopath like he's not the good guy and he knows it in the movie but in Burt I don't know that he does I think mean, he's just playing. Well, I haven't seen Burnt. I, oh, good I, for you. I, yeah, I heard the. 
Well, that's the thing is you get... It's also a Harvey Weinstein film, so the monster um, authority figure is sort of a subtle flesh. Good to know he lost money on that, <laughs> hopefully. He lost nothing. Yeah, well, you get... Sometimes as a food writer, you get invited to, you know, like... The, oh, the trip, events, The yeah. trip to Italy, or, you know, Burnt, or Chef. I did go to a screening of Chef, but, like, you get these sort of, like, they're was, hoping to get some press from, from food people, and they're all... I feel like... Everyone's trying. This is a big bit of a generalization. Once in a while, someone tries to make a movie about food that is trying to capture something uh, that is essential about food, and they usually fail either because, as you say, they are falling into that horrible trap of chefs are the new rock stars, and you know, and like all the bullshit that that uh, entails, or trying to be too twee and sweet and and be all about the you know the ephemeral magical moment of tasting something oh that was the um Ashwarya Ray movie The Mistress of Spices mm, which is mysteries just of spices. no mistress, oh, the she, mistress is, of spices. she herself is the mistress of spices and there is a scene in the film where having fallen in love with the wrong person she actually says out loud oh spices why didn't you warn me <laughs> and I oh now I want to see the ramen girl with uh, Brittany Murphy oh is that Brittany Murphy or is that was, yeah. Sarah Michelle Gellar no oh no that was Simply Irresistible that's but there's also a ramen girl movie where she the goes ramen to girl is Japan much more and, recent and that was I think that was the late Brittany let's Murphy. do them both my favorite so my, my, my favorite food moment yes, from I the was, movie I derailed your point there is uh, the scene in Saving Private Ryan where after the 20 minutes of Recreating the invasion of Normandy, there's um, there's a cut back to America, and then we see uh, a, a Tom Hanks who's battle wary from watching dozens of people being slaughtered in front of him, and they're like in a makeshift camp, and there's a cutaway to him looking at people um, pouring coffee and slicing roast beef sandwiches. Yeah, isn't that when they tell him what the mission is, and, and he then, looks around and sees all the things he has to leave behind? Yes, yeah, simple comforts. It's, just before that okay. it's him walking into the meeting with Dennis Farina and who, who says relax I have a cream soda yeah. uh, he and it's I, you'll, I don't know what the name for it is but you would know that there's a, like a film theory thing of like oh if you if you show a man looking out the window forlornly and then cut to a loaf of bread he looks hungry and if you cut to a woman he looks like he's thinking of his lost love yeah uh, I want to say the Kuleshov effect but I may be wrong I'm going to agree with you on this point. I know it's not the Kalash. But it's that, right? Because yeah. it's not a it's not Spielberg's greatest moment as a filmmaker, but it's just it's Tom Hanks. We've seen him do all these things and he just looks tired, and it's not like he is looking at the sandwich with his tongue hanging out of his mouth or that these are the most luscious food porn shots of all time. In fact, they only last like 3 seconds yeah. max. They're very quick, but it's a like, brilliant shorthand. Brilliant. They're great, and they say so much about the character and the role of food in our lives more than a lot of the bullshit food movies that have tried to be like, this movie will enchant you with, you know, it's like, it's it's fetishizing of, of food. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the difference. Also, I like Ratatouille. Ratatouille's pretty great. Yeah. But it is, like, it is the difference between... This is just great food photography and this is what these things mean to these people. Mm. And that's what Big Night does because it's all about the it's all about the expression of mm-hmm. those emotions through food. And it's yeah, it, it's the woman crying. Like it's the my mother is a terrible cook line, which I have I have loved 
so hard. And that is the thing that I wanted, like the thing that I'm most annoyed about Tucci not doing that interview because he wrote that line and mm-hmm. I know he heard it. And I want to know who What if went. Campbell Scott wrote that line? Nah, it's no? Tucci. Because he's the food guy. He's the one who yeah. paid attention to it. Well, do you know what his history is? I know that he like growing is... Growing up? Uh, no, I don't know anything about him, really. Like, he's fully formed in my li- in my mind as Stanley Tucci. Mm-hmm. And I knew who he was before Big Night. I had seen him in some stuff. But this was the one... This was the film where it's like two roads diverging in a wood, where he could have continued and been a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And he just... The, instead, they made the imposters. And it failed, and, and then he just stopped? Yeah, they just backed away. Was that and it? He, he does cookbooks now. He lives half the time in Italy. He makes money now. He's, yeah, well, he yeah. shows right? up for like, a Transformers movie. He for... hunger-gamed it, and now he's fine. Yeah. But I do think that he kind of picked the path of least resistance with the Transformers movies and the Hunger Games movies, and that he is trading in much the same way that... Ian Holm is trading, I can never remember the character's name, in Big Night, he is trading on a version of himself that is less satisfying mm-hmm. to him. And I, I know he's probably very happy with his relationships and with his friends and with eating at great restaurants, but I would love to see him express himself creatively again in this fashion because right. he does have a talent. It's interesting that I hadn't actually considered until now the artist who made this movie, the Tooch... And his own conflict with art versus commerce. Yeah. Thank you for bringing it it's up. It's clearly part because of it. in general, like, hey, go make money, people. Like, it's not my job to police anyone's artistic credibility. But he did make a movie about it, right? Yeah, oh, so absolutely. He certainly had some strong uh, feelings about this in in ninety five, ninety six, or probably like five years leading up to it that he labored over the script. Yeah, these things got just the funding and all this thing. About. Uh, and I have no idea how it played out in terms of the funding for the next movie and how much work that was and the disappointment and all these things. Um, but yeah, clearly it was someone who didn't just get in the business to be famous and make money and, and, and does think about you know that, that, that central conflict. Um, that's not to say that like... The thing is, we're not pretending like Stanley Tucci hasn't made like fantastic movies and turns in dozens of amazing performance as you know he's turned into a character actor who shows up for like five or ten minutes and has you know we really we rewatched the uh, uh the journalism movie uh the post not the no, post the no, other no. one all the presidents the better <laughs> the better one uh oh, like, spotlight spotlight yeah right. his weird yeah character in Spotlight is so great. Yeah, he makes every movie brighter by being in it. He is one of those rare character mm-hmm. actors who I'm just happy to see. Does it all. Credits. He plays sweet fathers. He plays creeps. He plays lousy bosses. He plays helpful wizards. Like <laughs> he, He's all up in there and, and he's always wonderful and if he wants to take a big paychecks movie then, then good for him. God bless. But it is interesting and compared with the other thing. Uh, those ambitions, not to say um, he shouldn't go make those movies so much as like the difference between those movies helping to fund the ability to make art versus those movies being able to help fund living a good lifestyle and going back and forth to Italy. And yeah. It's probably less stressful than mounting another motion picture. Yeah. And I can't blame him for doing it, but at the same time, like, yeah. I know what he can do. He right. showed me, and I, I want more of that. Yeah, well, most of us can't really answer the question, like, if you, if money was not an issue, 
what would you do? Because we really, it's it's so abstract from our actual oh, yeah. daily lives. And I like to think that like I would never be happy without working and without working in some creative capacity, you know, like like I've done for the last 10 or 15 years. And yet I have no fucking clue. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I would spend six months not doing anything. Yeah, maybe I'd suddenly like... Myself. Skiing, <laughs> or you could try it. A windfall. I mean, everybody says you know they win the lottery, they won't change anything about their lives. It's like, eh, you probably would though. I mean, change it all. You probably would. Central air in every room. Uh, like <laughs> new new capacitor, new whatever the compressor for every room in the house. I would do that this year. That would be my thing. I like your modest dreams. You've won the lottery. And apparently, it's just enough to put air conditioning in your modest Toronto home. In every room of my modest Toronto home. Oh, in every room. Every oh. single room has its own air compressor. So it's central air to that room. I could have temperature modulations. Oh, yeah. No, I'll go insane wow. with power. Like That's, Bill Gates probably has. Yeah. Probably. He can even just say it. 82 degrees. <laughs> I interviewed a guy who told me he went on a six-hour car ride with Bill Gates. And he said it was Recently? like the most stressful thing in his life leading up to it because he was like, what am I going to talk to like this yeah. guy for six hours? And um, Tentacle porn? Like what are they? No, he said it was great. Like he's a super smart guy who you can't hope to really keep up with on every level. But then in the end, we're doing a long car ride and they were going through like Africa or Australia or somewhere. Um but in the end, like in a long car ride, you just end up talking about like your, your kids and sports teams and your favorite albums and like things that are not so highbrow. Yeah. That's as it should be, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. human. I just, I never got to ask this follow up, but like, why was it just the two of you? Why didn't he have. Doesn't he have a driver? Yeah, have, yeah. People with. Toda. Yeah. Like, how is there not a team of people with Bill Gates? At well, all they were time? in the car behind them, obviously. Right. Sniper scopes, just making sure. Right. Sorry, they had to have been. A billionaire does not go anywhere without security, period. One assumes. Yeah, and there Helicopter? was... Well, this guy seen. works for the Gates Foundation, and they were probably going through some developing area. Um, so there's a built-in safety warning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, they, would, they would have been the middle car in a caravan, now that I'm thinking about yeah. it. Right? There's no way. They're just driving around the middle of nowhere That's with the opening of a Transformers movie. The world's richest man. Who Autobots assemble. That's the funny thing. In fiction, there's no such thing as a good billionaire, That's right? That's true. For Daddy mis- Warbucks, I guess, misguided. and Willy Wonka. But he made... The, Daddy Warbucks made all the money from the war, and Willy Wonka made all the money from the, the, the fruct- fructose. Yeah, Willy Wonka's not a great guy. No, that's why they had to change the laws. <laughs> right. Sorry, this is not a new... That was not a novel. But it thought. was food-related, so it gets us out. Sure. That's actually a pretty good button. Is it? That. Yeah. I just I feel bad, because I'm like, I'm like the, the thousandth idiot to point out that Willy Wonka was a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, that's been covered, by the way. My thanks to Corey Mintz, whose new podcast, Taste Buds, is still a couple of episodes away from the end of its first season. You can find it at canadaland.com or get it by searching for Taste Buds, two words, on your podcast app of choice. You can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Mintz, all one word, and while Big Night is currently out of print on disc, it's available on iTunes and Google Play and Amazon in a new HD transfer. So, you know, get on that, Twilight Time. Also, fun fact, Stanley Tucci has subsequently directed three features on his own. The latest one is called Final Portrait. It just came out in Toronto like a month or two ago, and I totally forgot about it. Tony Shalhoub is in it and everything. Anyway, that's on me. 
As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.